Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 37. Okay, Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to look this morning um, at the story of Joseph. We're going to do a high-level overview, and so I'm assuming that you kind of know some of the basic details. Uh, We're not going to read every verse, but even if you don't, I think I'll be able to share enough to kind of help you get the big picture of what's going on here. So if you remember anything about last week, we looked at Genesis 3, uh, the fall of man, and that Adam and Eve's uh, first response was not to run to God and beg for mercy and forgiveness, but to run away and say, we got this, we can fix this on our own. And it didn't work out very well. And so now we're going to look at the first time in the Bible where the concept of forgiveness is specifically mentioned. It was certainly present in Genesis 3, but the word was never used. And so we're going to look at this story of uh, Joseph. It's pretty famous. And just three quick points. Okay, sin, forgiveness, and then reception. And I'll explain what I mean by that when we get there, okay? So the first point, sin. And you could say it this way. Um, What really is sin? What's the essence of sin? It's any time that I like and or trust in my own plan more than I like and or trust in God's plan, right? Okay? At an ultimate level. Sometimes at the surface level, it can be okay to say, really don't like what you're doing here, Lord, but I trust you. At the most fundamental bedrock way, I trust you, and so I'll kind of, I'll like it on faith, right? But when I say, no, no, Lord, what you're doing, I don't like it. I don't like it so much that I can't trust it anymore. I'm going to go my own way. That's when we get into trouble, okay? So, let's look at Genesis chapter 37. Again, like I said, we're not going to read every verse. We're going to start in verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So, if you remember, Jacob is the father. He essentially has four wives. With these four different wives, he ends up having 12 sons, Okay, uh, which you can just imagine, probably mo- many of us either came from or we know people that are involved in broken families. But this is a really interesting family. One daddy, four mamas, same household, 12 sons. I mean, we were having some conversation about sons that like to wrestle. I mean, these sons really hate each other because the 11th son, Joseph, came from Jacob's favorite wife. And so Jacob loved Joseph the most, and he was not scared to show it. And, you know, he bought him this multicolored tunic. That was kind of Joseph's pride possession. It was a way for Jacob to say, this is my favorite boy. You older ten kids, I guess you're okay. Uh, but I'm so glad I finally had a baby with Rachel. He's my favorite. There's just there's sin all over the place. The sin of favoritism. The sin of hatred. And Joseph, when you, you read the whole Bible, Joseph comes off as one of the best characters in the whole Bible. And yet here in chapter 37, what we're going to see is at best... At best, if you want to paint Joseph in the best light possible, you'd have to say he was naive to the point of being a moron. <laughs> but, I, but I think if we want to give a more honest, objective perspective, he was arrogant, right? And it would, listen, it would be hard not to be arrogant growing up in that type of family, right? Where daddy is always smiling on you more than everybody else. That just kind of goes to your head. And it, we're going to see here that sometimes it seemed like he liked to rub that salt in the wound just a little bit. And it didn't help his brothers very much in their perspective on him. Okay? Just a side note. Oftentimes, our sin against others is just going to encourage them to sin against us all the more. I mean, sin always splatters. Sin always has a corporate effect. Even the stuff you do in the dark all by yourself, even the stuff you do in your mind all by yourself, 
The consequences might be minimal for that at a corporate level, but the, the bigger and badder your sin is, there will be an effect on other people. Jacob's favoritism affected all of his sons, and then his sons start sinning against each other, and it's a downward spiral. So he goes and shares with them his dream. Look at verse 11. He has multiple dreams. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. So his father knows what's going on. Joseph is having these dreams that he's going to be a ruler one day, and he keeps telling his brothers. And it kind of sounds crazy to me, but I'm thinking about it, but his dad doesn't step in. He doesn't do anything. And his brothers, what do you think they thought of these you know, dreams that Joseph was having, that he was going to rule the world? They hated it. They hated it anymore, right? They didn't need to know about it. And so it's like Joseph is just piling on. They're getting more angry, more angry, more angry. Skip down to verse 18. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. So they hate him so much, they're like, we'll just kill him. Again, part of where you see dad's sin in all this is dad was just ignorant, right? I mean, he's got the ten older brothers out working the field. He's like, hey, Joseph, why don't you go check on them? I mean, how much are they going to appreciate that? Here comes daddy's favorite out into the wilderness. Just to ch- I mean, the dad, again, is ignorant, to the point of being sinful. And Joseph goes out there. We know how this is going to go. Skip down to verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, um, keep your finger there. Uh, well, just flip over for just a second to chapter 42, verse 21. Chapter 42, verse 21. This is later in the story when they're kind of wrestling with their conscience. And look at what they say in chapter 42, verse 21. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Now, I'm guessing most of us are the Sunday school crowd, right? We grew up up in church and we have memories of Joseph from the felt board and all that, right? So we can just become so at home with this story. But I want us just to try to pause for a second and put ourselves into Joseph's shoes. He's a 17-year-old boy. He has lived, they they were a very wealthy family, so he has lived a very cush life. Except he has these big brothers that talk trash to him and they're kind of mean to him and they hate him. But who cares because I'm daddy's favorite and daddy protects me and I get all the good stuff. But then one day I'm riding out into the fields to check on them, you know, in my kind of appointed, exalted position. They beat the snot out of me. They steal my clothes, my prized possession, kind of the sign of dad's honor. They throw me into this probably pretty deep pit Threatening to kill me. I mean, they're probably on the verge of murdering. And then, it's, it seems to be, from what he says in verse 42, that he's probably down in the pit begging. Guys, come on. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I keep telling you about my dreams. Let me out, right? We can work this out. I won't tell Dad. You know, probably begging, crying. 
He can probably hear him up there eating, laughing, joking, just calloused. And then at some point, a rope comes down. And just think about the relief that probably came over Joseph. Okay, they're not going to leave me out here. They're not going to kill me, despite their threats. And as he's coming up, maybe he starts to hear some other voices, some foreign accents. He starts to see the traitors, all their camels. What's going on, guys? And he starts to realize they're going to go. And listen, to be sold into slavery in Egypt back then was a pretty good chance it was a death sentence, right? I mean, how'd the pyramids get built? Sure, it wasn't easy labor. And just the begging, the tears, the crying, and just the wicked hard-heartedness of his brothers to say, see you later. I mean, this is a sin. It doesn't get much worse at the human level, does it? I mean, just, God forbid, think if a couple of your children did this to one of the younger brothers, how you might respond. I mean, literally, the first thought that comes to my mind is, I'd kill somebody. Back to chapter 37. Verse 31. And so they took Joseph's tunic and they slaughtered a male goat and they dipped the tunic in the blood and they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. I mean, again, the calloused, hard-hearted settledness in their sin, they're covering it up. In a sense, they've sealed his fate. Dad will never come look for him. You think he's been beaten by a wild animal. He's done for. At least they think, all right? God has a good plan. Now, this is such a good story. I wish we could do more, but we can't flip over to chapter 45. All right, that's their sin. They didn't like God's plan. They didn't trust God's plan, so they came up with their own plan. But forgiveness, and one way that we can talk about forgiveness at the human level is we say, I like God's plan so much, I trust God's plan so much, I'm able to forgive others. Okay? Look at how this is going to play out. Um, and, and just side note, flip back to chapter 44 for just a second. Because you all know the story, I think, right? They first come to get the food from the famine, and Joseph, he tests them. He puts them through all these tests. And we can say, that sounds kind of mean. Well, he was trying to make sure they had genuinely repented. He was trying to make sure they were genuinely broken and changed. And look in chapter 44, verse 16. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Now you can read uh, more of that story, but that's kind of the high point where they're like, we're guilty, we're broken, we hate what we've done. Whatever you're about to do to us now, we deserve it. There was genuine brokenness. There was genuine repentance. And so Joseph's going to forgive him. Look in chapter 45. Okay, um, Let's start in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now... This is key. Look at verse 5. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. How was Joseph able to forgive so radically and freely? Because he got the bigger picture. He got the bigger story. 
God has done something so big, so wonderful, even through your wickedness, that I can look on your wickedness and say, I forgive you. It's over. And don't even be mad at yourself. It's over. God used it. Life-changing. For the famine has been in the land. Well, let's... let's uh, let me, let, me, let me show you this real quick. Keep your finger in 45. We're coming right back. But flip over to chapter 39. But chapter 39 is the chapter where he got to be kind of a house slave, which is better than a field slave, I guess. But then Mrs. Potiphar, you know, wants to sleep with him. He does the right thing. No good deed. Goes unpunished. He gets accused of rape. Gets tossed into prison. But four different times in that chapter it says the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. And look at what it says when he's in the pit of the prison. I mean, this is kind of the lowest of the low. Chapter 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Now, I've got the New American Standard here. Does anybody have a different translation where that word kindness in verse 21 is translated differently? Steadfast love. What's that? Steadfast love. Okay, steadfast love. Listen, this is the Hebrew word hesed, which is, which is God's covenant love. And, and, and you know, English commentators and translators for hundreds of years, they can't find really one good English word to translate it. because it, it, It's this steadfast love, this covenant-keeping mercy and kindness. So we don't know. It may have been in the pit of the prison is when Joseph got genuinely converted. Or it may have been he was already a genuine believer in the Old Testament since the Word. But something happened in his lowest point. It's like he had a deeper experience of God's covenant-keeping love and faithfulness. And it changed him. And so by the time he was literally the second most powerful man in the whole world, I mean, Egyptian was the superpower of that day, and he had all power to bring wrath onto his brothers who had hated him so much, he showed him mercy. And why did he show him mercy? Because he had experienced so much of the mercy of God. Now, back to chapter 45. Chapter 45, verse 6. For the famine has been in these lands two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you, me saying the same thing, to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. God's been good to me, so I can be good to you. Verse 8. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here. I mean, he, this is the third time he's essentially saying the same thing. It's like he's preaching this truth to him. It's like he's preaching this Old Testament gospel to them. But God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Okay? Now, he understood God's plan and he liked God's plan and he embraced God's plan. And he said, listen, you guys had a wicked plan to kill me, but God was working through that wicked plan to get me here to deliver you. And I like what God's doing. Joseph is different than the elder brother and the prodigal son. Remember that story? Because the elder brother got God's plan. Oh, you're going to forgive the younger brother? And he hated it. I ain't coming to the party, Dad. Joseph is different than Jonah. Oh, you're going to forgive the wicked Ninevites just because they had a little fast? He understood his plan. He just hated it. I'm going to go sit under a tree and pray that you'll kill me, God. Joseph got God's plan and he liked God's plan. And guys, I just ask us, most of us, right? We're good PCA people. We pride ourselves on getting God's plan. But you really like his plan. And I just don't mean the big picture. Oh, yes, I love the story of creation, fall, redemption. Good for you. I'm talking about what's going on right now in your life where there's suffering. Can you say, I trust him so much. 
I mean, even Alan's prayer, right? We didn't coordinate that, but like, thank you for weaknesses. Thank you for sufferings. Can you in some genuine sense say that even in the midst of the pain? Joseph could. Let's keep going. Verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now, you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt. And all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all of his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards his brothers talked with him. And look at verse 22. Uh, To each of them he gave changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Okay. Just based on that little section of the story we read. Even if like you've never heard this story before. And you've just heard what we've read here this morning. Would you say that Joseph has genuinely forgiven his brothers? Yes or no? Yes. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's just patently obvious, right? He is not going through the motions. There, there, there is much emotion, weeping, there's affection, there's kissing, there's gifts, there's mercy, there's speaking about it repetitively. It's overwhelming how much he's forgiven them. This is the way forgiveness is supposed to work. Again, they really repented, and he's really forgiven but this is not the end of the story, okay? Flip over to chapter 50. Again, they go back, they get dad, they get all their stuff, they come, they live in the land for many, many years. And then finally daddy dies. And one of Jacob's last requests was, hey, don't bury me here in the land of Egypt. Take me back home and bury me there. So they do. They go on this long journey together, they bury him, and they get back home. And this is what I was talking about, our third point, reception, and I'll explain what I mean. Chapter 50. Okay, um, we're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, let's see, skip down to verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, now just pause before we read the rest of this. There's no record that what they're about to say, hey, daddy said that daddy ever said. And the best understanding is they made it all up. And what they're basically going to say is, daddy said be nice to us. Don't kill us. Even though you can, even though maybe you should. Now why are they doing this? Because although they've repented, Although they have been forgiven, at some level they haven't really received the forgiveness. They haven't really received it. They're still very tempted to trust in their own plans. God's plan of forgiveness doesn't seem quite strong enough, quite sure enough, quite big enough to cover the wickedness that they had done. And so they're still wrestling with a guilty conscience. Okay? I mean... This would be a little bit like if Adam put on his fig leaves, right? Got behind the tree. God came and started talking. Hey, Adam, I love you. Forgive you, buddy. Come on out. Just killed a lamb over here. Got you some real clothes that'll really keep you warm. It's like, nah, I'll stay behind the tree. Still not sure. I might get a lightning bolt in the face, right? 
Okay? They're suspicious of Joseph's good heart. Has he really forgiven us? Or was he just playing nice for dad? Okay. Now, one thing is kind of a side note, but if you go back, take the time to read the whole story, although there, did, there was confession, there was repentance, they never, there's no record they ever came to Joseph and said, what we did was wrong, please forgive us. They never asked for forgiveness. And I've just wondered before, because I do think in human relationships that's so important, to go through the actual motions of saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. Right? I mean, just side note, marriage counseling. That's what, it, it's amazing how many godly married couples, yeah, we fight, then we repent, we kind of get over it. It's like, yeah, did you ever really reconcile? I mean, I was meeting with a couple Thursday night, and they had a really, really rough week, and they're kind of talking about it. You know, and all the terrible stuff they've said to each other. And someone I just said, have y'all reconciled yet? And they're like, no. I mean, it was almost like this is the first time they're talking. They were just kind of getting along, making it work. It's so helpful to go that I was wrong, I sinned against you, please forgive me. And then to grant forgiveness. Maybe that was part of what's going on. So let's keep going. Look at verse 17. Thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you. Right? It's like they're fearful to ask for forgiveness, but Daddy asked for forgiveness on our behalf. The transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father, and Joseph wept when they spoke to them. Now, why do you think Joseph is weeping? They didn't get it. They didn't get it. He's like, guys, I really did forgive you years ago. And I've been doing everything I know to, sh- to show you that mercy, blessing you, prosperity, taking care of you, <coughs> loving you. It's all been genuine. And at some level, they've been experiencing it at the surface level, but it hadn't sunk down the depth of his heart. And it breaks him. I mean, guys, this is a little bit like if you ever, you know, hypothetically had to spank one of your kids, okay? And, and they did something really wrong. So think about like the worst thing that any one of your kids has ever done up until this point, okay? Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share. And so you, let's say you had real righteous anger. It's only the one time you've ever had it in your whole life. But you had real righteous anger. You raised your voice. Your face was stern. You spanked them. They cried. They went to the rooms. But then later you came, you came to them and said, hey, buddy, I want you to know, it's over. I forgive you. Daddy loves you. Mom's not mad anymore. We want you to come back downstairs and have a bowl of ice cream with us. And they're like, no, you hate me. Right? Am I the only one that has experienced this? And as much in that moment as you know your own human heart, you're like, no, no, I'm not mad anymore. I'm over it, man. I really forgive you. I'm all in with you. I want you to come downstairs and eat this bowl of ice cream with me. But something about their little guilty conscience, and let me go a step further, it's not just that, the pride of the human heart. Because I don't want to accept full forgiveness. Okay, Um, listen, have you ever sinned against somebody else? Yeah, I'm definitely not going to ask you to share about this one. In a really heinous way. And you felt terrible. And yet they really fully forgave you. And it was maybe hard to really believe, like, are you sure we're okay? I mean, I really forgive you. It can take a while. Because (coughs) our sinful hearts are programmed for legalism. They are programmed for, let me pay it off. Let me fix this. Again, it goes all the way back to the garden. It entered into the bloodstream of humanity. 
Okay. This whole time they've been experiencing the goodness of Joseph, but they hadn't really been experiencing it at the deepest level because they've still been living in worry, fear, doubt, distress. What if Joseph later is going to get me? Right? He's just softening us up. He's making us lower our guard. Then he's coming. Now, I said this last week. Some of you weren't here last week. We just started last week. Okay? The first three weeks of this quarter, okay, we're not moving very fast because all the different things going on in my travel schedule. We're really going to focus more on our horizontal, excuse me, our vertical experience of God's forgiveness to us. You say, well, this sounds very much like a story about human forgiveness. Yeah, it is. But I want us in our minds right now to shift and think about how do these principles apply to us and our Father in Heaven? Because how many Christians, genuine Christians, real Christians, obedient Christians for the most part, right, live in this kind of territory with God? I know God says He forgives me. But I'm not sure he really does. And we don't say it quite that way, but let me tell you, let me tell you phrases that I have heard from good PCA people that grew up in good PCA families and went to good, you know, Christian schools and were involved in ministries like campus outreach. I mean, they were all in. I guess technically I know God loves me. I'm not sure God really likes me. You ever heard somebody say that? You ever thought that way? Yeah, I know God forgives me. I just can't forgive myself. You know that one? That sounds really good, right? Man, you're just so upstanding. You're holier than God. (laughs) Let me give you one illustration. Because listen, when you say, I can't forgive myself, okay, it's really hard to believe anybody else would ever forgive you. Another human being, even God. I had a Samford guy that I was working with years ago. He was a football player. and he, That's the thing he used to say. I know God forgives me for all this stuff, but I don't know if I can forgive myself. And I finally said this to him. I said, imagine if you were playing in a game, you're a starter, okay, you're a contributor, and you make a big mistake in the game. But you come over the sideline, and uh, the coach says to you, forget about that one. You made a mistake, I forgive you. It's over. We're still winning the game. Don't worry about it. And then some like third string, no name freshman punter who doesn't even get his picture in the program. <laughs> he comes over to you and starts mocking you. You moron, you loser, I can't believe you dropped that pass. I said, What would you say in that moment, you know, to the third string punter? And he's like, well, I, don't know, I guess I'd say it doesn't really matter what he thinks because the coach said, It's exactly. I said, No, you want to know who you really are in this illustration? You're not the starting receiver, you're the third string punter. Who cares what you think? Even about yourself. When God speaks and says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Whether you feel forgiven or not. That makes sense? Now, obviously, we want to experience the forgiveness. That's, that's so important. Because to the degree that we experience it, we enjoy it, and then it'll be easier and more natural to practice it with others. And that's part of what we're talking about right here, guys, is going from the mental assent and knowledge of God's goodness and forgiveness to the taste and see the goodness of God. Think back again to the prodigal son. Remember him coming home? I mean, the mental image I have is he's kind of walking like this, real slow, sheepishly, like, man, this is going to be terrible. Public shame and humiliation, that's what I got coming. But I'm starving. I'm desperate. I'm still covered in pig slop. I stink but I think my dad is merciful enough to let me be a slave. If I go back and say, hey, dad, you're nicer to your slaves than these guys over here were treating me, 
I'll be a slave and work my whole life to pay it off. Remember he had a speech that he kind of memorized? I've sinned against you and against heaven, right? It's a good little speech. Remember what happens? Daddy jumps off the porch, sprints to him. Before he even finishes speech, he's like, hey, shut up. You're back in. You're dead. You're alive. Kill the fatted calf. We're about to have the biggest party this town's ever seen. Get the robe of righteousness. Get this pig slop off of him. Cover him. Give me daddy's signet ring, right? Daddy's gold platinum card on your finger. You're back in. Now, gold platinum. I just made that up, all right? <laughs> Tiffany was like, I want one of those, all right? Tell Eric, he can get you one, all right? You never have to pay it back, all right? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. This isn't in the, in, in, in the story, but can you imagine this? Can you imagine hypothetically that the next morning the prodigal woke up and for whatever reason the guilty conscience came crashing back in? Maybe because his older brother had been such a jerk to him that he snuck back out and he went out and he moved his stuff from the master bedroom in the house out to the bunkhouse and he went and started working in the fields because he still felt so beat up and guilty. And his dad wakes up, comes down excited to see him at breakfast. Where's my son? He actually moved out to the bunkhouse. He's out there working with the slaves in the field. And the dad has to go through the whole process again. Buddy, you don't have to do this. I think there are a lot of Christians who have really good theology up here, but practically in their heart they live with a bunkhouse theology. I guess I'm going to go to heaven when I die because Jesus forgave me. So there's that. That's pretty good. But... You know, for the next 80 years or however I live on planet Earth, I just really don't think God likes me very much. I think God's probably primarily just frustrated and disappointed with me, and so I better work my tail off to maybe make him like me a little bit better. And guys, it's just a false theology. And listen, whether you tend to be more of a libertine who wants to go out and party your brains out, or whether you tend to be more of a legalist, at the core level, the sin is the same. I don't fully like and trust God's plan to make my life work for me. So I will find a different way to make it work for me. Whether that's through medicating with alcohol or whether that's with medicating with my own self-righteousness that makes me feel better about myself. And both of them are dead-end plans. Now this one might be more scandalous and land you in jail or, you know, a hospital. But sometimes this self-righteous plan over here almost has a better chance of landing you in hell. And let me tell you why. Because it's so subtle. It looks so good on the outside. You can show up to Sunday school and look like you fit right in. So part of this, guys, is we got to get deeply broken and humbled about what I deserve. Yeah, I deserve the wrath of God for all eternity, and yet I don't get it. Just a couple more verses, and then we'll be done. Okay, skip down to verse 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. We'll work for you in the field. I added that part. Okay. But Joseph said to him, Do not be, in, be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He says, listen, yeah, you guys did deep wickedness. 
And humanly speaking, me compared to y'all, I was innocent. But y'all treated me like I was guilty. But God was working behind the scenes to bless you, to preserve you, to keep you wicked people alive through my innocent suffering. He said, well, Joseph's not technically all the way innocent in front of God. Right. But Joseph is just this little dim reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ who was in the place of God and who had every right to say, those wicked sinners down there who keep rebelling, let's just zap them, Father. That's what they deserve. But he said, no, no, I'll leave the place of God. I'll put myself in the place of sinners. I will be the one true innocent sufferers. And even the people that literally commit the most wicked sin, like that of killing me and mocking me in my moment of weakness, I'll say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And out of his righteous suffering to us, the wicked people, who if we had been there probably would have been cheering, crucify him, crucify him. We get real forgiveness, full and free. And you don't have to work to earn it. And in fact, if you try to work to pay it back, that's offensive to him. Better just to enjoy it. And then out of the overflow of that joy, live a life of obedience. Not because you have to, because you want to, because you get to, to honor such a God and a king. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we do love you. We do appreciate you. We do adore you. We do worship you, but not near enough. There's still so much sinful fear in our heart, so much doubt, so much worry, so much callousness at times. I pray for myself. I pray for everybody to listen. Please make us more soft-hearted to you. Please make us more aware and in awe of our sinfulness, but of your grace that triumphs over our sinfulness and how full and sweet it is. Let us taste and see more and more of the adoption that we have in you. And let us live out of the overflow of that joy. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. Thank you.